Well, woe, as in W-H-O-A. Uh, this passage in front of us this morning is a, quite a passage. Uh, this passage starts with a very strong term, denounce, and it ends with a byword, so to speak, the name of a city called Sodom. And in between, there's three other woes, as in W-O-E, uh, and then if you've uh, uh, been observant, you've noticed that eventually this morning, we're going to get to the Lord's table, we're going to get to communion. How we do that from this passage to there remains to be seen. Whenever I pray uh, for a message like this, I usually say, Lord, we're eager to see what you have in store for us. <laughs> I contemplated simply getting up here and just yelling at the top of my voice, repent, but let's look at some context first. You know, that context is very important to me, plus uh, I need to save my voice for the second worship gathering. Well, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, you'll remember chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, at the very conclusion, the last verse, verse 29, Matthew writes that it was acknowledged that Jesus had been teaching them as one who had authority. And when you think of authority, think in terms of power. He had the power to do the teaching that he was doing. Matthew's been weaving this tapestry of who Jesus is uh, for the last 11 chapters now. And his purpose is to present Jesus as king. That's on a poster out there in the foyer. You walked by that. You may not have noticed it on your way in here this morning. And he's been illustrating this in various ways in earlier chapters. Through Jesus' teaching, in other words, what Jesus says, through Jesus' actions, in other words, what he does, Jesus has been turning the perspectives, uh, the expectations, uh, even the interpretations of Scripture, the Old Testament, he's been turning all of that upside down. Or as I like to say, actually, he's been turning it right side up. For 10 chapters, Jesus has taught with authority, with power. He has demonstrated authority or power over various diseases, even demonic forces. And in today's passage, we're going to witness his authority to bring judgment. Jesus, as he identified himself in verse 19, the verse right before our passage, he identified himself as the Son of Man. That's an authoritative title for him. He not only has the ability to bring judgment on sin, but he has the right. He has the jurisdiction, so to speak, to do that. If you just uh, remember, those of you that have been here for the last few weeks and those of you that have not, just glance at chapter 11, you'll you'll see that there's a, a very basic three-part outline to this chapter. And we're going to be looking at part two this morning. Uh, the first 19 verses, Matthew is presenting Jesus as Messiah or Christ, the one who had long been promised. And that's, that's what he's talking about there as Jesus has interaction with his disciples and also the disciples of John the Baptist. In today's passage, verses 20 to 24, <clears throat> Jesus is going to be presented as judge. So he's Messiah. This morning we're going to see he's judge. And then next week, Pastor Scott, when he returns, we'll be able to get to the really good stuff at the, in the last paragraph of this chapter where Jesus will be presented as Savior. 
Now, if you walked in here this morning with little or no understanding of who Jesus is, then uh, fasten your seatbelts because these five verses may surprise you. Uh, They surprised me just in uh, preparing to share this message. We like to share a central theme or a, or a big idea, and so I'll ask that that be put up on the screen behind me. Here's the big idea for these five verses, 20 to 24. Namely, following Jesus demands nothing less than repentance. Following Jesus demands nothing less than repentance. Let's go back and look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Now, what Jesus is doing here is he's connecting these verses with his previous conversations. In chapter 11, he's had conversations with his disciples, the followers of John the Baptist, and there's been a crowd around listening in on this, and he's been instructing them while conversing with them, and now it's as if he turns to that crowd and he begins to go a little deeper, a little farther, and he begins literally to denounce. And he's using an extremely strong term. Your version, uh, the ESV says denounce. Your version might say revile or reproach. However you translate it, it's a very strong term in the language of the day in which Jesus is teaching. And it conveys holy anger. Now, this is not some sort of impetuous anger, but this is holy anger, which is about to bring judgment on someone for something. That's what the term denounce literally means. And he references that most of his mighty works had been done in certain places, in certain cities. We'll get into the details of that in just a minute. The term mighty works, sometimes that's translated miracles. And we've seen a number of miracles already. In fact, the residents of these three cities that he's going to talk about have seen a a large number of miracles. The term that we translate mighty works or miracles is the same uh, Greek word that we get the English word dynamite from. So you get the idea of of power here. Uh, So his powerful mighty works had been done in these places. And in fact, miracles are symbols of Jesus' power, his authority. They attest to the reality of what he claims and his authority that he possesses. If you're taking notes, and I urge you to do that, here's here's a a pearl I'm going to drop for you, okay? We discover in this passage that a primary purpose for miracles is to produce repentance. Usually, we think, well, I need, a, I need a miracle. You know, I've got a sick child or grandchild. I, I need a miracle. I, I'll take common grace of medicine. That'd be great too. But Lord, if you could perform a miracle, that'd be wonderful. That's how we usually think about miracles. No, miracles, the primary purpose of them is to produce repentance. I urge you to ponder that, to think about that as we work our way through the text. Well, it's one thing to just drop that statement, but what does that word mean? What does repentance mean, right? When I was a boy in Sunday school and I grew up, uh, my parents had come to faith in Jesus just before I was born, and they made an about face in their life and their behavior, their conduct, and so we went to a Baptist church that was 
way more conservative than this one. That'll put things into perspective for you, right? <laughs> in fact, you might want to use the word fundamentalistic as opposed to Baptist. And I was taught in Sunday school the meaning of this word repentance, and this is what I was taught. Tim, it's like you're, you're in the military. No, I never served, so I don't really know how to do this, but I'm going to try. And you're walking one way, and it's like a staff sergeant barks out the command, repent! And what you do is you put your back foot back, and you turn around and go in the opposite direction. That's what I was taught. It was on the flannel graphs that we watched, that we looked at. It was, it was, yeah, that's what I was taught, is repent. Well, that's, that's part of the meaning, but there's so much more behind this. Deb and I were just uh, reflecting last night how that when I first was given the assignment to preach these five verses, it's like, oh, wow, this, these, this is interesting. I'm not sure there's enough stuff in here. Just get up and yell, repent, and it'll be done, right? But, but the longer you sit with this passage and understand what's going on, the deeper this passage really is. And so we're going we're gonna to look at some of those details here this morning. This idea of repentance, this is not a new idea with Jesus. When he launched his ministry back in Matthew chapter 4, we read that uh, he, had, he had withdrawn after John the Baptist got baptized. He had withdrawn. Jesus had to Galilee. In fact, uh, he had left his hometown of Nazareth where he was born, and he went and he lived in Capernaum, one of these three cities, Capernaum by the sea. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, this is Matthew 4, verse 17, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this idea of repentance is not new. It's not novel. It's always been there. The verb itself, the term repent, is often explained as a change of mind. And if you unpack the Greek language, that's what it looks like on the surface, to, to change one's mind. Now, in the Greek culture of, of Jesus' time, that could have meant to change your mind from uh, bad to good, just as well as from good to bad. The Greeks had a real kind of uh, loosey-goosey interpretation of this. Jesus, on the other hand, his usage of this term is heavily influenced by the Old Testament. The Old Testament written largely in Hebrew. And the term for repentance there is actually two words. Two separate terms. One means to be sorry for one's actions. That makes sense, right? But the second word means to turn around to new actions. So repentance, as we're using it here, as Jesus is using it, is more than an emotional state where we feel sorry over the consequences of sin. It, it is that, but it's much more than that. Repentance means having an entirely new attitude of heart towards sin. Now, this is a radical transformation of the whole being, the entire person. This isn't just a mental thing like the Greeks would, would be prone to think. No, no, no. This is your entire being. It's a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, resulting in what the Apostle Paul says when he stood before Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 and gave a defense of his faith, he talked about repentance, and he said, resulting in performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Do you see the connection? Repentance always assumes some sort of obedient response. That's what the Old Testament brought very, very clearly to bear, and that's what Jesus is saying when he uses the term. 
Now, we are a Baptist church, but I frequently like to reference the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I did teach at a Presbyterian college for five years, so that influenced me for a bit. But, you know, written way back in 1648, listen to these words about repentance. There's actually a question in the Shorter Catechism. It's question number 87, and the question is, what is repentance unto life? Now, by the way, you know, a catechism it was designed, this was designed to teach young people, children, the truths out of God's Word. So this would be a question you would ask your children. What is repentance unto life? And this is the answer that they would learn. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, doth, I love that, doth, (laughs) with grief and hatred of his sin, Turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. Isn't that rich? That's that's a mouthful, but wow, that is so powerful. That's what repentance unto life is. Jesus is calling for a revolution in the whole of life. He's calling for people to change their whole direction away from sin and toward God. It's not just away from something, but it's toward something, away from sin and toward God. In other words, if Jesus were here, well, he is, but he physically were here, and he put it in other words, he might say something like this, I want to know if your life has been changed by your faith in me. I believe he'd say that. So I'm saying it for him. (laughs) He wants to know. He wants to know if our life has actually been changed by the faith that we profess to have in him. Has God worked the grace of repentance in your heart? I mean, has he? I'd love to talk to you about that this week. Let's have a cup of coffee. Let's let's meet for lunch. Let's talk further about this. For now, let's go on to the next couple verses, verses 21 and 22. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it'll be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Let's look in a little more detail about these these four cities. First of all, this this term woe that he he repeats here, it's actually used twice by by name, and then it's, it's, it's referenced a third time in just a minute, we'll see. It's an exclamation. It's an exclamation, but it's born out of out of grief. It's born out of anguish. It describes how greatly the person who is saying it is feeling as they think of the person they're speaking to who's going to be suffering. It mingles doom, we think that, whoa, as doom, but it mingles that with pity, with compassion. It combines a warning with compassion. Look, Jesus has been imploring these people, the crowds, for months and months before he finally brings these words of reproach. Yes, Matthew 11, verse 20 is a turning point. And you can clearly see that as we move forward toward the cross. This is a turning point in the narrative of Matthew. But the response of the crowds in these cities has been what? It's been, meh, indifference. And so, indifference in Jesus' mind is the same thing as rejection. Let me say that again. Indifference 
toward the gospel of God's grace is really no different than rejection. And Jesus knows that. But what's interesting is his strong words here, and, and I mean, this is straight fire, right? By the way, you noticed maybe that I got up to check the thermostat because I already noticed it's 76 degrees in here. At least it was. It's more now. It's not working. And it's like, oh, thank you, Lord. We're going to bring straight fire. It's Pentecost Sunday, and we're, you're going to feel it. You're going to feel it with me, okay? But Jesus is bringing straight fire here, his strong words. But, but guess what? His words, they actually reflect a pastoral concern and a compassion, that deep-seated feeling that he had when he would see the lostness of the crowds. Well, he compares four cities here to illustrate his point about uh, repentance. Chorazin, Bethsaida, Tyre, and Sidon. Let's just talk very quickly, very briefly about that. Chorazin, this is the only place that's mentioned in all of Scripture. We don't know much more about this except that it was about a two-and-a-half-mile walk northwest of Capernaum. So Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee on the north, and so it's a little bit northwest of that. Chorazin was the northwesternmost point of a triangle of ministry. Jesus did a lot of concentrated ministry in these three cities, and so it's been considered kind of a triangle of ministry in Galilee. Bethsaida, on the other hand, was, was close to the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, but east of the Jordan River, where the Jordan River flowed into the northernmost top, the top of the Sea of Galilee, and then, of course, it flows out of the, of the southern end and heads on, on its way south. It's about three miles east of Capernaum. So these villages are not that far from each other. Bethsaida means house of fishing, and so it points to the occupation of most of its inhabitants. It was also the birthplace of uh, one-fourth of the disciples, the birthplace of Andrew and Peter and Philip. So Bethsaida has a lot of stuff going for it, plus Jesus performed a lot of miracles there. Not the least of which is he restored sight to a blind man. He fed 5,000 people plus nearby on the hillside overlooking Bethsaida, and he, he walked on water just offshore. <laughs> so a lot of things had, had occurred there. Jesus had made himself known through his powerful works in a lot of different ways. Tyre and Sidon, on the other hand, are very large uh, Phoenician cities on the eastern Mediterranean, although not that far away, but they're on the coast, and they're known for their opulence. They're known for their wickedness. Uh, they were still in existence because uh, at the beginning of the book of Judges, we learned that the nation of Israel did not clear out the land completely, and Tyre and Sidon were left. They're often denounced by Old Testament prophets for their worship of the idol Baal. And to a Jewish audience in Jesus' day, Sidon would be a synonym for wickedness. So by drawing this comparison here, Jesus is strongly making a point about the need for repentance. For all the popular excitement that he had garnered in his Galilean ministry, and people were excited about it and aroused by that, it found little genuine or lasting repentance or response from these lakeside towns where Jesus had been most active. He's telling the citizens, now, you know, he's not talking to the bricks and mortar of those three three towns, two in this case. He's not, he's not talking to the brick and mortar, but he's talking to the citizens, and he's saying, look, you are ripe for judgment because you've been indifferent 
to the gospel of God's grace. Interestingly, in just a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is actually going to visit Tyre and Sidon. Uh, I don't think I'm preaching that day. We'll let someone else handle this because it's a problematic passage. But he actually heals um, a Canaanite woman's daughter who's oppressed by a demon. And that in and of itself tells me that judgment is going to be brought down on Tyre and Sidon, but, but Jesus is actually going to go and he's going to extend some grace there. But he's, he's saying to the residents of Chorazin and to Bethsaida, look, if, if I had done the works that I did in you, Amongst those people, they would have repented long ago, in sackcloth and ashes, no less. And I think there's a reference there. I think Jesus has in mind, you know, remember what happened when Jonah, after he got vomited up on the eastern Mediterranean shore, and he went to Nineveh, and he simply said, hey, in 40 days, this place is going to be destroyed. That's all he said. That was his message. And what did they do? It says, look back at Jonah chapter 3, it says, they believed God whoa. And they responded, and they repented. So I think Jesus has that in mind as he's comparing Chorazin and Bethsaida even here with Tyre and Sidon. It gets better. Let's look next at verses 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. I wasn't going to do this, but I will. That's another way. You paraphrase that? What what has he just said? You're going to hell, is what he just said. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in, woo, Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Uh, There is a a woe here. It's, It's implied. He doesn't use the term, but he asks this question. You think you're going to be exalted to heaven here? And by asking the question, he's he's implying that woe, judgment is coming upon them as well. Well, what about Capernaum? Interesting place just down the hill from the Sermon on the Mount. It's where Jesus performed multiple miracles. Many of them have already been listed in our study of Matthew as we've been moving through this gospel. For example, the centurion's servant was healed right as soon as Jesus walks into the city. Remember, the unique thing about that is Jesus healed him at a distance, never even saw the servant, just took care of it. Peter's mother-in-law, so Peter has relocated from his birth uh, town of Bethsaida. He's now living in Capernaum. His mother-in-law was healed. Uh, A paralytic was let down through the tiles of the roof and and was healed. And the list goes on and on. The list is actually quite long of specific miracles that were recorded in Capernaum. It's also Matthew's hometown, the the writer of this gospel. It's where uh, he was born. And we know from chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus calls it his own city. He had left Nazareth, and he had sort of adopted Capernaum as his own city. Well, this village enjoyed a profitable fishing industry, and we know that because they required the presence of a tax collector's booth, of which Matthew was in charge of, right? And there was the presence of a centurion. So it was a Roman outpost. It, all of those things indicate that Capernaum was a, was a thriving place and it was some sort of administrative center for uh, Galilee. Is this what they had in mind when Jesus calls them out and asks, will you be exalted to heaven? 
I'm not quite sure, but Frederick Dale Bruner, who's written a wonderful set of commentaries, two commentaries on the gospel according to Matthew, says this. Capernaum stands for all self-conscious Christianity, for all Christianity smug in its possession of Jesus, in its being the center of Jesus' work. Could be. Jesus says the opposite of what you think is going to happen, in fact, will happen. And then he makes this same comparison but now with another city. He compares them to Sodom. Now, Jesus' audience, they know the story of Sodom. They know what happened in Genesis chapter 18. They know where Abraham basically negotiated with Jehovah, negotiated him down from, I'm going to go down and we're going to destroy this place. And Abraham says, well, what if there's 50 who are righteous? And Jehovah says, okay, I'll spare if there's 50 who are righteous. And then we go down and down and down. A few weeks ago, I think Eric uh, preached on this. He goes to 40, and then he goes to 30, and then he goes to 20. And he finally gets to 10 before Jehovah says, I'll spare it if there are 10 righteous, and then the Lord turns around and walks away. In other words, you're not, negotiation's over. <laughs> he walks away. This statement here that if the mighty works have been done in you, that... Uh, that had been done in Sodom, that were done in you, Capernaum, it would have remained until this day. I was talking to somebody this week, I forget who it was, and they said, what, what does that mean, remained? I said, it means there would have been at least 10 people. <laughs> it would still be there. How many, how many people left town? Four, right? Lot, his wife, two daughters. They didn't even have the number 10. And so what, what's going on here is that Sodom, this this city that had been destroyed and we believe buried under the Dead Sea, it had become a byword, another synonym for sin and for iniquity and debauchery. Sodom, in fact, typified the wickedness of the land of Canaan before Israel had come in and conquered it and settled there as the land of the covenant. By the way, what is the sin of Sodom? What do we think of? We got a, we got a term in the English language based on that. It's interesting, though. Uh, yes, there was sexual immorality. There, there was unnatural desires. Jude, chapter, uh, verse 7, says that. But Ezekiel 16 is a fascinating a prophetic statement. The prophet Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They had all these, all these common blessings, common grace blessings from God, yet they did not aid the poor and needy. And as a result, verse 50 of Ezekiel 16 says, they were haughty and did an abomination before me. So I removed them when I saw it. There was a lot implicit there. Yes, there's sexual immorality, but there was a lot more going on behind that in the culture of Sodom. Well, a, a har- can you find a harsher contrast to compare Capernaum and Sodom? You, you can't imagine one. I mean, that would be crazy. And for a Jew standing there in the, in the, uh, within the voice range of Jesus, in Jesus' audience, to prefer Sodom? That's outrageous. That's crazy talk. What are you talking about, Jesus? This, this jars the senses, right? I mean, even today... Thousands of years later, we think about that and go, no way. Jesus is trying to shake them 
out of their indifference because he loves them so much. I want to make just a few uh, observations from this passage. And it will lead us, believe it or not, (laughs) into, I hope, a wonderful celebration of the Lord's table. Let me repeat. I'm going to show you again the the big idea, the, the key point here. Following Jesus, if we can put it up on the screen, following Jesus demands nothing less than repentance. The Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus, demands a response to his gospel, to the good news of his grace. He's calling these three cities, the residents in these three cities, to get get all in on following him. And he's calling us as well. He's calling you and me as well, even as he calls them. Which begs the question, how will we respond? Seriously, how will we respond? Will we be, will we be like the citizens of Chorazin or Bethsaida? Well, you know, enthusiastic for Jesus. They were even in close proximity to him. But enthusiasm and proximity to Jesus are not the same as faith and trust in Jesus let alone repentance. Or how about Capernaum? Will will we respond like the citizens of Capernaum, kind of arrogant, smug in our perceived position? I mean, we live in America, right? The United States of America, founded on moral principles derived from God's holy word. Are we smug in that view of things? I was born and raised into a fighting fundamentalistic Baptist church. Am I smug in that position? So attached to maybe my past or my perceived religious worldview and and the programs that come with that, that effectively I'm indifferent to Jesus and therefore I'm rejecting Jesus? This is hard stuff to talk about. But Jesus is talking about it, so we got to do the same. Look, Jesus is not looking for amazement. You know, the crowds, they were amazed at the miracles that he performed. Think of the, even the paralytic who was let down by his friends. We know that the paralytic responded in faith because Jesus said, get up and go home, and he did. We know that the four friends had responded in faith because they believed that Jesus could heal, and so they brought their buddy and they lowered him down. But the text back there in, in I think that's chapter 9, they, the rest of the crowd goes home. And that was in Capernaum. They go home. Kind of just, hey, they're amazed. Wow, isn't it great? Another light show here. But they didn't repent. According to Jesus, they didn't change. You know, these, uh, these cities, they didn't attack Jesus. They didn't shut their doors their gates to him. They didn't seek to crucify him like the residents of Jerusalem were going to do, but they disregarded him. The, the, the issue here is not how these cities compare to Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. The issue was whether they, in fact, had embraced the good news about King Jesus. That's, that's the issue. And that's the issue for us, right? I mean, we can compare ourselves all we want to other churches, other so-called Christians, but it, at the end of the day, it's, am I, am I embracing the reality of God's grace in my life? 
Am I repenting? Am I turning my, my total life toward him? Or am I just indifferent to the grace of God? There's danger. There's danger in ignoring the good news of God's grace. I think that's the implicit message here in these verses. Not responding to Jesus' authority is going to lead to rebuke and ultimately judgment. Matthew chapter 7, verse 26. You can put it up on the screen here. Matthew 7, 26. Uh, we, we studied this already, but I want to remind us, again, that toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, what? What, what was that again? Yeah, was, is it memorized? Is it here? Is, no, it's do, right? And does not do them will be like what? Will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Back to the commentator Bruner again, great quote. It was a very lengthy one, and it's like, okay, i gotta, I got to shorten this up here, but he says this kind of in conclusion on this statement, on, on these verses. Bruner says, every member of a church has Jesus. For Jesus is present. He's present in his word. He's present in, in the fellowship. He's present in the sacraments. But Jesus does not have every member of his church. We have Jesus but Jesus does not have us. What does he mean by that? He goes on to say, he has only those who under the impact of his marvelous grace are actually changing. That's what Paul calls progressive sanctification. That's what we celebrate on Pentecost Sunday. We, we celebrate the work, the ministry, the person of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, I sent a prayer this morning to the two other guys that are preaching, Rick out in, in Wilsonville and John at Gladstone, I sent a, and, and Adolfo also in Gladstone. I sent a text this morning praying that God would fill them and me fully with the Holy Spirit and that it would just, the Holy Spirit would spill out of, of us in our messages today. And what I really meant by that was that the Holy Spirit would be totally controlling us, totally fill us up and control us and bring change because the kind of change we're talking about the kind of change jesus is talking about it ain't gonna happen in my strength it's not gonna happen in your own strength it can only happen through the enabling and the empowering of the holy spirit who is given as a gift when we embrace the gospel of of grace Hebrews chapter 2 says this, uh, the, the writer of Hebrews, we're not sure who it is, but these first four verses in chapter 2 are wonderful. Therefore, we must pay, pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. We've got to pay close attention. And so I urge you, I urge you, acknowledge who Jesus is in all aspects of his character, even the judgment aspects. And then submit to his authority. And as I'm sharing and saying this to you, I've got a mirror right here in front of my face. Repent from your indifference or preconceived ideas of who Jesus is or how he should be. And then accept his forgiveness 
and then obey his words and then bring others to Jesus as a result of what he's doing there. And this brings us to the Lord's table. Now, you're going, really? Uh, 11, 20 to 20, really? Well, it, it does in that I'm going to leapfrog just slightly to verse 28. Now, I told Pastor Scott, he's out of town this week, and I said, I promised him, I said, I said, Scott, I'm not going to steal too much of your thunder. I'm going to borrow a little lightning, but I'm not going to steal too much thunder here, okay? But these, these two sections go together, and he gets to preach the fun one next weekend. Look, at, look specifically at verse 28. Very familiar, right? Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the invitation this morning. And, and actually, I'm so glad that it's the first Sunday of the month when we observe communion. I'm so glad that I got to preach these verses because they lead into the reality of what Jesus has done for us. 